0: It's virtually impossible to imagine a world without the internet. This vast network of computers all sending and receiving information across wires and through the air, it's made collaboration and communication effortless from almost anywhere in the world. Libraries of information are only a click away. And of course, it's allowed me to speak to you every single week. But there was a time, and it wasn't so long ago, when none of this existed. The bright spark that arguably made it all happen is our guest today. In 1968, Vince Cerf was given the task of working out how to connect computers to each other in a stable and reliable way. His invention changed computing, And more importantly, it changed the world. This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, we speak to the father of the internet about how modern computing got us to where we are today and where intelligent machines will take us next. Vint, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be on this call with you
0: let's talk about the internet as it is today. I mean, it's almost so ubiquitous that you don't notice it around you because people have smartphones, computers, they're always connected in every possible way. But did you see them coming as wide and as pervasive as they are right now?
1: Well, certainly, I'd be langy if I said that I foresaw exactly what we're seeing today. One thing I can say, though, is that we rapidly saw the development of computer-mediated communications as a powerful tool for the general public. In fact, I think one of the interesting things about email was that it didn't require you to be awake at the same time in order to have an exchange. Parties all have to be awake if you're on a telephone conference call, which meant that time zones are a problem. But you can respond to the email anytime you're awake, and uh, the other party can read it when they're awake. and So you no longer have to be time-synchronized. And we thought that what this would do is reduce the travel requirements because we could communicate without having to be in the same time zone. And a few years later, we looked at the travel budget and we discovered that it had gone up rather than down. The question is, what happened? And the answer is, well, the projects that we were working on could span multiple time zones because of the convenience of email But then we did have to get together from time to time in the same time zone. And that meant we traveled more distances with more of us because we could manage them better with the email. So the budget actually went up instead of down.
0: So you became more productive via email uh, as well as being more communicative. That that makes sense in hindsight, of course. I, I wonder if you could talk to me about what you think... In terms of the current version of the internet that we have, the current sort of uses that people put them to, are there places where you think there are challenges, concerns that sort of when you look at what's been created from your inventions, what concerns you?
1: Well, first of all, I refuse to take responsibility for people that abuse the internet by doing harmful things in the context that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I understand <laughs> that. I just wanted to make sure that you were aware of that. I mean, nonetheless, I'm you know I'm dismayed by some of the harmful things that happen, whether it's malware or misinformation and disinformation or denial of service attacks and a variety of other things, the like bullying. There are all kinds of things that people do that I wish they wouldn't do, and I'm sad that they use the Internet to do it. But, you know, it's like every other technology. It's possible to both use and abuse it. That's the challenge, frankly, is figuring out how to make this environment safer for everyone without losing some important notions of human rights, whether it's privacy or the ability to communicate with anyone that you feel the need to communicate with. So the regulatory environment struggle with some of these challenges. And I find myself drawn into those debates and discussions. Uh, You mentioned ubiquity, by the way. I just want to emphasize that we're still only about two-thirds of the way towards making internet available to everyone. So we still have a ways to go, but I think we're on our way.
0: I wonder what your thoughts are on the next decade of the internet. Should there be more regulation about the kinds of content that companies allow on their platforms, or should they be made to take responsibility? I mean, of course, in Europe, there is specific privacy legislation that prevents your information being used in a way that you don't want it to be used, which is perhaps the right move in the right step. And I wonder if America should adopt similar legislation.
1: Well, I can assure you that there is a lot of debate on this topic. In fact, I met with uh, one of the senators on this topic, and there is clear indication that our Senate and our House of Representatives have concerns about the potential abuse in this online environment. They want to do something about that. I would distinguish Europe and the U.S. in the following way. In the U.S., the way it tends to work is something bad has happened we should regulate. In Europe, it's more like something bad might happen, we should regulate. So Europe tends to be forward thinking on regulation and the Americans tend to wait until something bad happens and then they try to figure out how to fix
0: it. Which is the better tactic, do you think?
1: Well, actually in the US, I would argue that the internet benefited from a very modest, if any, regulation at all in the early days. The wisdom was that we didn't know how this technology was going to evolve, how it would be used, and to stifle it with regulation before we could even figure out what benefits they would have, would be a mistake. And so I tend to favor that perspective, but now it's 2023, and it's very clear that there are issues arising that would require accountability. And I would emphasize that if you want to hold parties accountable for their behavior, then you have to know who they are, which means that anonymity is not your friend in this environment where regulation requires that you know which parties are engaged. Who's communicating with whom? With whom am I exchanging traffic, whether that's email or maybe a business exchange with a service provider. In
0: 1968, computers were huge, expensive machines that filled entire rooms. Only big companies, universities and governments had them. DARPA, America's Defence Research Agency, wanted to find a way to make these enormous computers talk to each other. Their idea, known as ARPANET, was to share information and computing power between academic institutions and groups of military
1: bases around the world. The ARPANET had been designed and built based on dedicated telephone circuits connecting the packet switches to each other But in a command and control environment, you have to be able to move around. So there would be mobile vehicles, ships at sea, and airplanes. And the question was, how do we make them all work together as if it were one big uniform network, even though each of them was very different?
0: The developers of ARPANET wanted to use a new technology called packet switching. This is where chunks of data, the packets, would be sent along wires from one computer to another. Unfortunately, in its earliest days, it wasn't quite working as well as intended.
1: Imagine an electronic postcard. It has a to address, a from address and some content. And a typical postcard, when you put it into the mailbox, there's a possibility that it won't make it out the other side. If you had two postcards sent to the same destination, they don't necessarily come out of the postal service in the same order you put them in, and that's also true of the packet switch networks. They sometimes get packets out of order. And in some cases, something that the packet network does that the post office doesn't do, we even duplicate packets because if you transmitted one and then you thought it didn't make it, you might retransmit it to make sure it gets there, and then the recipient might get two copies.
0: Packet switching was good in some ways. The idea was that if a communication line between two computers was broken, the packet would automatically find a different route around the network to compensate. Therefore, a breakdown in the network wouldn't stop the flow of information. But packet switching was also slow and inefficient. Vince Cerf and his colleagues wanted to improve it to overcome some of the early limitations.
1: To make use of this stuff, you have to figure out how to cope with lossy packets, duplicated packets and disorderly arrivals. And in order to do that, you have to build protocols that are capable of dealing with that problem.
0: Protocols are just the rules that the packets of data being sent over the network need to follow.
1: We had to develop a uniform addressing structure and packet format to allow these multiple networks and the hosts on all the different networks to be able to refer to each other in a uniform way. That's what led to a protocol called Transmission Control Protocol, or TCP, which eventually was broken into two parts, a part that dealt with the end-to-end communication, the recovery from duplicates and packet loss and the like, and a lower-level protocol, which was called the Internet Protocol, which is just pure electronic postcards that got to the destination as quickly as possible.
0: Their revolutionary system was called TCPIP. This, by the way, is how web pages and almost the entirety of the public Internet nowadays sends and receives its packets of information.
1: So we had these two layers, the TCP layer and the IP layer, were the core of the internet architecture. And that's what Bob Kahn and I pioneered. We wrote a paper that was published in 1974. And then we got help from a whole lot of people who had been working on the ARPANET who were equally excited about working on this multi-network internet.
0: So the Transfer Control Protocol, TCP, uh, Internet Protocol, which is IP, it's something that I think people who use the Internet today probably don't know about TCP IP. But it's the thing that allows all the computers to actually talk to each other without having to worry about how different each of the computers are. But I wonder, when you wrote that protocol, you just describe it as something that was specifically for military use. I mean, it was for DARPA, which is the Defense Department in the US. It's the research arm of that. Did you think that it would be useful for other things in the future? Or was it just very clearly focused on military applications when you were working on it?
1: Oh, no, no. We had several years of experience with the ARPANET. And although that was just a single network, we found very quickly that the applications that we could build were quite useful for other than military applications. In fact, the original ARPANET was designed and built in order to save money. The idea was that the Defense Department was sponsoring research in artificial intelligence and computer science. They had a dozen or so different universities involved, and every year, every university was saying, please buy us another world-class computer so we can do world-class research. And even ARPA couldn't afford to do that every year. So they said, you know what, we're going to build a network and we're going to connect all your computers together and you can share each other's resources for computation, share each other's algorithms and programs and software.
0: Bear in mind that computers are very, very expensive back then.
1: Back then, they were millions of dollars. They had to be in air conditioned environments and so on. And everybody hated the idea, but it was a really brilliant one for two reasons. First of all, it forced us into understanding this packet network technology. But it also allowed ARPA to say, we're funding all of you. So please don't hide your results from each other in order to have an edge on next year's proposals. We're going to fund all of you, share your results so we can accelerate the pace at which artificial intelligence is developed. And, of course, everybody should understand this is back in the late 1960s and early 1970s. AI has come a long way in the 50 years in between.
0: We'll talk about artificial intelligence in just a moment and how that's developed and, and what the current state is, but just sticking to the bones of the internet for a bit longer. It sounds like when you wrote TCP IP and it w- was proving useful that it might have been something that the research funders and the government and the universities they were keen to work on. I mean, is it something that you had to do a lot of persuading to people to say, we need to work on this stuff? Or did people see the potential straight away?
1: Well, it was an interesting experience. Uh, First of all, the ARPANET revealed that electronic mail, which was developed around 1971, was a very valuable tool. We had remote access to time-shared machines, which meant we could run each other's software. We had the ability to move files back and forth. That was all very much useful to the research community. We were anticipating packet voice and packet video. We were using the ARPANET to test some of those ideas. When the internet design came along, it was intended to apply all those ideas, but the people who were using the network and building it were the graduate students primarily at these various universities. So we found ways of using the system for our own purposes, which turned out to be common kinds of things that you'd find the general public using. So in the early days of email, we very quickly developed the idea of a distribution list And the first distribution list that I joined was called Sci-Fi Lovers. It was people debating who were the best authors, what were the best novels. And then the next one I joined was called Yum Yum. It was a restaurant review thing for the Palo Alto area hosted by Stanford. But the primary driver for the Internet was the intent of the Defense Department to build a command and control system using these new technologies. Our allies would also need access to that technology, so we eventually made visible to everyone how the internet worked, and that was our first publication in 1974.
0: Did you decide what the best sci-fi novel was back then?
1: Uh, Well, I have my own opinions. I'm not sure they're shared by everybody. Well, I think the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov is very, very high on that list. And some of the uh, earlier Heinlein science fiction is wonderful. And Arthur C. Clarke, 2001, 2010, and so on. The classics. Uh, Yeah, those are all classics.
0: We'll be back with Vint in just a moment. He'll tell me what society has learned from previous generations of disruptive technology, like the internet, and how those lessons can be applied to the current generative AI revolution. That's all coming up. Today on Babbage, we're talking to Vince Cerf, one of the inventors of the internet. And for almost the past two decades, he's also been vice president and chief internet evangelist at Google. On the programme so far, Vint and I have spent some time looking at the history of the internet. In the next part of our conversation, we'll think about how to address some of the current issues that these technologies are facing. Now... On the issue of regulation, you described how Europe and America have slightly different ways of dealing with technology. And I wonder if we can apply that logic to the next big technology that everyone's talking about, which is uh, you know artificial intelligence and specifically generative artificial intelligence. I wonder, as governments, companies, others are grappling with how this technology gets introduced to the world, what your thoughts are on this? I mean, do you see things like Generative AI, ChatGPT, all these things, are they threats or opportunities in your mind?
1: Generally speaking, I consider them opportunities, although there are potential hazards. So let me first say that we should not narrow our focus of discussion solely on the generative machine learning, you know, large language models. They are, of course, very visible, very popular, creating a lot of excitement. But let's step back for just a second. AI has a long history. It started in the 1960s on ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, was one of the early funders of that and has done for quite some time. There have been several phases, which I won't waste your time on right now, but the most recent ones are based on what's called machine learning. There have been enormous numbers of positive outcomes of machine learning. The thing that's creating all the hoo-ha right now is the large language models. And the reason that they are creating such a stir is that they ingest enormous amounts of text from online sources, hundreds of billions of lines of text, and they build a model of human discourse. So if you give it a prompt, like I did recently, I said, please write an obituary of Vint Surf," And it produced a 700-word obituary, which is very well-worded. It was also dead wrong. It, it invented family members that I don't have, at least not that I know of. Did it confuse uh, you
0: with a different Vint Cerf? Uh,
1: it didn't confuse me with a different Vince, Cerf, but it confused some of the work I did with work that other people did, and it conflated things. And it's all completely understandable when you look at how these language models actually work. They, they are plucking phrases and what we call tokens from text. And they're figuring out what's the probability that this token would appear within a certain distance of that token. And when they start generating text, they use those probabilities to figure out what's the next likely token in the sentence that's being produced. And so because they pluck those tokens from web pages all over the net, they might pick up a token from somebody else's biography that just happens to be on the same web page as mine. And then it gets confused about whose biography is it referring to. I mean, that's a, kind of a, an overly trivialized example, but you get the idea. So these things hallucinate. That's a term that the technical people use. It's, it's a little bit like Sigmund Freud. You know, where he was telling everybody that there's an id and an ego, and they get out of control sometimes, and so there's a superego to try to manage that. Well, we don't have an artificial superego that can manage the hallucinations of the chatbots yet. At some point, of course, I expect we will. They produce a lot of useful output. Some of them can produce software. The problem is that the software may have bugs in it. And so even while we're making use of the chatbot to generate software, we now create a new task for ourselves, which is to evaluate the software to figure out whether it actually is safe and secure and not buggy.
0: Now, I I suppose humans have to be the superego for now for the generative AI systems.
1: Yes, I think you're right about that. That's the best we can do at the moment. So when everyone worries that somehow the chatbots will usurp all the programmers' work, the answer is no. The programmers will be busy trying to figure out whether the software generated by the chatbots are safe and secure.
0: I wonder about how we as a society learn from the sort of previous generations of technology on the internet to inform how we allow machine learning tools and large language models to actually be used. Do you favor an approach like we've done most recently, where technology is not regulated and is allowed to flourish and then we deal with problems later? Or do you think that we've learned our lesson in not regulating things like social media and seen that problems have come, so why not get ahead of the problems in terms of artificial intelligence?
1: Well, the first observation I would make is that if you're going to try to regulate and insist on compliance, it had better be feasible to do that. In other words, can you specify what mechanisms are needed and must be applied in order to achieve the regulatory effect you're looking for? To insist on regulation that isn't implementable is not wise because it leads to chaos. So, I would be very careful about making regulations to be assured that they are actually implementable and that people can or that companies can comply with them.
0: What do you mean by implementable? I mean, what, can you give me an example of something that isn't implementable?
1: Well, at the moment, it's not 100% clear how easy it is to assess whether the output of a chatbot is factual or not. In fact, we have a a very amusing recent case, apparently, where some lawyer decided to use a chatbot to generate an argument and references in a particular case, in a pleading. And it turns out that the chatbot made up references that didn't exist. And of course, the judge was not amused. And so the problem here was that the chatbot was capable of generating what looked like reasonable checks and references, but turned out to be not factual. So we don't have mechanisms right now that I'm aware of anyway, that will readily determine whether the output of the chatbots are factual or not.
0: Except checking it themselves, I guess. That's, that's the only way we have, isn't it? In the case you talked about, the lawyer didn't check the, uh, the output no, of, the, uh, of, no. of the chatbot. No, no.
1: Well, the hilarious part about all this, and maybe the hazardous part, is that the chatbots are capable of generating very cogent-sounding arguments. They look very confident, even when they're wrong. If all we were using the chatbots for is amusement, like, please write me a story about an alien that got into my wine cellar, which I did once, and that was all very amusing, But it's something else to say that you want the chatbot to give you financial advice or medical advice or treatment advice or something else. You absolutely don't want to do that. So maybe the right thing to do is to approach the regulatory effort against risk, which applications of the chatbot are not risky and which applications have risk associated with them. And the more risk there might be associated with an application, then the more scrutiny is required of the output. Then we have to learn how to achieve that scrutiny, maybe with some automated tools and maybe with injecting humans into the loop.
0: So perhaps more scrutiny of high-risk areas and perhaps even some regulation before the fact in this case is is warranted. Is, Is that what I'm hearing from you?
1: Well, I think that if one were to propose, let's say a company, to use the large language models for a particular application, and if it were concluded that that application had high risk associated with it, I can imagine the regulators saying, you know, wait a minute, show us that you have the capacity to limit the risk that a user might experience trying to use that chatbot for that particular application. And we might have regulators debating and maybe multiple stakeholders debating how to achieve that objective and for which applications risk is considered high.
0: Now, the American government is interested in this and seems to be interested in some form of conversation around regulation of these kinds of AI technologies. And even the companies seem to want to talk about it too. Indeed. The the, the CEOs of the major AI companies are already saying if not the words, please regulate us, but at least think about some sorts of regulation. I wonder what you think about the open letters that have been sent out by various groups of artificial intelligence researchers and companies suggesting a pause or some sort of slowdown in the development of these applications and technologies. Do you think these things are workable or a sensible idea, or are or, or they just pipe dreams?
1: Well, I'm not sure whether I would label them pipe dreams, but I will say that pausing is not going to help very much. What we really need to do is to understand how these things work better than we do right now. So we need more
0: research, actually.
1: We need more research. We need to really dig deep to understand the mechanics by which these things produce their output And then figure out by what means we can limit or put guardrails in place that are more automatic.
0: The advent of these technologies has happened, at least in the public mind, quite quickly. Even though, as you say, the idea of artificial intelligence has been around in computing circles for many, many decades. And I guess it's happened so fast that people haven't formulated their thoughts and ideas around them. I wonder how disruptive you think these kinds of artificial intelligence technologies are going to be. Um, Are they as game-changing and disruptive as the early days of the Internet, for example, when you started to connect computers and you saw all these applications and then the subsequent decades of development? Or does it compare slightly differently?
1: Well, it's a different kind of disruption in some respects. I mean, if you just think generally about software and the fact that software that has bugs can pose hazards. This has been a problem ever since we've had computers and programs. And learning how to debug a program, learning how a program could misbehave unexpectedly uh, in some context has been a challenge for the last 80 years of programming. They are power tools. Just like every other power tool you can think of, if you don't have a set of rules and regulations for safety, then you could easily, you know, suppose it's one of those chainsaw things. If you don't know how to use it, you might cut your leg off. So the chatbots and their applications, people need to understand how they can be misused in harmful ways. The drama that comes out of these, of course, is the ability to generate such convincing output, whether it's text or images or sound, and there are some interesting arguments about wanting to be assured that if there is output that we are confronted with, that we know what came from a chatbot, can we watermark the output to say this is chatbot output. The reason I think that is unlikely to be successful is that some of the most interesting uses of these mechanisms is a combined human and chatbot interaction where, you know, you keep refining the prompting that causes the chatbot to produce output. Eventually, the product is the result of a collaboration between a piece of software and a human being. So then the question is, well, is that or is that not watermarkable as generated by an artificial intelligence? I don't think that we have any good conclusions on this question.
0: Maybe helped by an AI is a good watermark in that respect.
1: Well, possibly, you know. So then we get into some very interesting problems in the educational community. How much help from a chatbot is acceptable, after which you believe the student has failed to show that the student has a command of the knowledge that they're supposed to be learning because the chatbot did 90% of the work? I have no idea how to deal with that.
0: But of course, I mean, in some respect, it's not that different to you know, accountant using a spreadsheet and the spreadsheet is actually doing all the calculations. And I'm sure no accountant says aided by a spreadsheet when they're doing all their sort of um, outputs to people. So, I mean, at some point, maybe the uses of chatbots will become so ubiquitous and common that labeling it just seems like pointless, actually.
1: Well, to use your analogy of the spreadsheet, the person who writes the spreadsheet and has a mistake in it needs to be responsible for the mistake in the spreadsheet. It may incorrectly account for things. So there's still some responsibility that sits with the accountant, and I think there's responsibility that would sit with the chatbot user or chatbot coach, if you like, for whatever output comes out.
0: Many computer engineers, many scientists who research right at the edges of knowledge often say that, you know, they do their work in an ethical way, but then the responsibility about things like safety and ethics in the real world is not their concern. It's, it's a concern of governments and society at large. Should engineers take more responsibility than perhaps they are doing already?
1: My preaching tends to be in the favor of taking responsibility. This is independent of chatbots. I mean, they take any piece of software. If you write that software and other people are using it, then you have at least some ethical responsibility for how it could be abused. Now, you can't necessarily stop someone from taking your elegant piece of software, which works perfectly, and then doing something bad with it. I mean, This is why I tend to defend myself when people say, why didn't you stop all those bad things from happening on the internet? The answer is because the internet doesn't know necessarily what people are doing. It can't tell.
0: Could you not have written something into TCP that makes sure that all the bad things don't
1: happen? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes, of course. And so all you can do, I think, in those cases like that is to say, by the way, these tools can be abused. Here are some of the ways in which they can be abused. And we need to figure out how we defend against that. I only have three ways to deal with problems like this. The first one is to actually put in technical mechanisms that prevent the abuse from happening. And sometimes you can do that. When you can't do that, then you have to say, well, look, if we catch you doing these bad things, there will be consequences. That's sort of post hoc enforcement. That's what law enforcement is about. And of course, that doesn't always work either because, you know, we tell everybody don't speed. If we catch you speeding, there'll be consequences, but we don't catch all the speeders. And then the final thing you can do is say, don't do that because it's harmful. And even though that sounds wimpy, sometimes when a large part of the population adopt certain norms of behavior, peer pressure can be quite powerful. And so all three of those kinds of methods may turn out to be applicable here.
0: So do you think that we need some sort of technology or AI police force? Or do you think that a lot of these challenges can be met with the systems and institutions we have already?
1: Well, first of all, I would not want to specialize the police force or something into just AI. Remember, software is a much broader category, and poorly written software has its own set of hazards associated with it. So we're back to uh, accountability for the abuse of these techniques. I'm sure you've noticed on a lot of electrical appliances, there's often a long list of things saying, please don't do the following things with this because they're hazardous. For example, the hairdryer. Don't sit in the bathtub with the air dryer plugged in. And some people do that. And, of course, they get electrocuted. And the people that make the equipment are trying hard to say, please don't use my equipment in the wrong way. Here are the kinds of things you should avoid. Maybe that's the kind of thing that we're going to have to say about certain kinds of software artifacts.
0: Let's move on to some of your other interests. You've talked about the internet not reaching everyone. There's many, many parts of the world still don't have it. What are the technologies or social things that need to happen to get the internet to more people, which seems to be a really fundamental thing these days?
1: Well, Elon Musk and Starlink and some of the other competitors in the LEO environment are helping a lot.
0: So satellite internet.
1: Satellite is very helpful, but it needs to be reliable. It needs to be affordable, which is an issue with various economies that we're trying to address. At the Marconi Society, digital inclusion has been a very important theme. I'm still chairman of the Marconi Society and very dedicated to that proposition that everyone who would like access to the system should have access to it in an affordable and reliable and sustainable way. And it needs to be safe and secure. So there's still a lot of work to be done, but I would say that we are approaching a point where everyone could theoretically have access to the Internet if they want it, but we still need to make sure it's affordable.
0: And, of course, your interest in getting Internet to places that don't have it doesn't stop with the Earth. You've talked about this interplanetary Internet. And I just I can't let you go without asking you more about this. What is the interplanetary Internet and who are we communicating with?
1: This is actually a 25-year project that started at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1998. Now it involves many of the world's space agencies. The idea is that we've developed a new set of protocols that are like TCPIP, but they're more suited for deep space communication. They deal with disruption and with high and variable delay. So the idea here is to build a network over time that spans the solar system to support manned and robotic space exploration. So the communication is among people and robotic devices We're not waiting for the Martians to show up or anything. We're certainly anticipating that an increasing number of spacecraft and possibly even an increasing number of human settlements will show up on the Moon, on Mars, and some of the other planets or their satellites over the period between now and, say, 2100. So all of this will evolve over time, and the group that's been working on this has been trying to design, build, and test protocols that will be suitable for that kind of spatial deployment.
0: Why do you think we need something like this? Is it, is it just for human exploration? You mentioned settlements. Are we talking about settlements on Mars and, and other places like that?
1: Well, it may happen. I mean, some people are anticipating that, but certainly we have a return to the moon now with the Artemis missions. There will be habitats. There will be people there. There will be laboratories, for example, or telescopes on the far side of the moon that are able to operate without much radio interference, as an example. So that's already happening. I mean, we've been expanding into space for, what, the last 60 years or so, and there's no reason why that won't continue. We just want to have more reliable communication so that all those devices that are out there and people as well will have reliable communication to do their work.
0: Okay, well, Vin, thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you.
1: Well, I certainly enjoyed the chat. Bye for now.
0: And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can keep up with all of the developments in the new age of AI by reading or listening to The Economist. Get your first month of a subscription for free at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.